On this week in sales, we're going to be taking a look at buyers buying faster, if the AI in sales hype is real, selling to the new millennial buyer, and much, much more. My name is Will Barron. I'm the founder of Salesman.org, and joining me, the co-host of the show, joining me by the power of the internet, sales legend, sales royalty, Victor Antonio. How's it going, sir? Man, I'm doing good, Will. How are you doing, my friend? I am very, very, very well. Uh, we were just talking yeah. about some stuff offer, exciting stuff yeah. for our new product over at Salesman.org and the webinar and the content that's coming forward with that. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm actually quite buzzing mm. after chatting with you, Victor, and uh, yeah. I'm ready for the show, mate. I have a question before we get started. You know, you got this dark look. You look like one of these guys from like a beatnik from the 60s right now. You know what I mean? Just kind of like, yeah, snap your fingers. I'm feeling very cool right now. Is that the vibe you were going for? Uh, no, I'm going to stand up. Right. Just a, lot, a bit more like That's a sailor. Hawaiian stand shorts. Up. No, I've got just chinos and a, a jumper. Not quite as cool as what you're trying to make out there. For anyone who's like listening to this on audio, you just sold me as this proper cool cat. And I just like some, um, how would you call it? Some like preppy. Uh, just college fella. That's what I look like in reality. I was trying to create an illusion for the audience who was just listening. Well, say this, Victor. Yeah, yeah. You're there, right? <laughs> looking sleek, slim fit, yeah. black t-shirt, big, yeah. you call it like a signet ring, big gold ring on your, on your hand there. You're By the way, do you, like... tell a story, do you ever tell a story about the hand ring? I got to, do you ever tell a story or no? no? Tell me. Okay, so it's a, it's a, it's a, you can't see it's an Indian. So, you know, I got a wedding ring and I got this ring. I hate rings. I hate rings. But obviously, I'm married, so that's a good one. 35 years, by the way, Will. Congrats. And this ring, when I graduated from college, my mother gave it to me. Now, my mother never had a lot of possessions, but she gave me this ring. And so every time she would see me, like, you know, because I moved away, I went to Minnesota. Every time I come back home, she would look for the ring. So, and then when, I, when the pictures were taken of me, like so I was doing an event, she would look for the ring. So I've learned to wear the ring. So that's, I only wear it, you know, in memory of my mother. Very good. That's why. Not well, to look gangster or anything or look well, like a you know. That's like a what I was just about to say. Not a gangster <laughs> as in like uh, a bad person just about to go and cut someone's head off. But a gangster mm -hmm. from the perspective of this dude is subtly affluent, chill, calm, cool, collected. That kind of uh, gangster vibe. That's what I'm getting from you. With uh, Until you open that, that, your mouth that, and then it all that, falls By apart. the way... <laughs> <laughs> that would be a hundred percent correct. Well, that, that's who I am. Well, I just I just needed to talk more mellow throughout this podcast. But go ahead, let's kick this off. <laughs> let's jump into some uh, new B two B buyer research. This is uh, from prweb.com. Uh, who are clearly doing PR reports on other articles. But the title of the article is: sixty three percent of B two B buyers now make procurement decisions quicker than pre pandemic. New A R. PR research concludes. So I'll do a few quotes on this, and I've got a few questions for you, Victor, to, to kind of drill down into it. So quoting here, when we polled CIOs and CTOs, 63% of respondents said that their IT budgets have increased slightly or significantly due to COVID-19. Anna Ruth Williams, ARPR CEO, says, quote, our survey points to a moment of reimagination. I like that word. Reimagination for software sales departments. Tech buyers are now empowered to drive innovation with more budget and faster approval processes. Victor, if buyers are buying quicker, if 63% of respondents are spending slightly or significantly more um, cash revenue budgets now post-COVID-19, are B2B salespeople in for a boom season? If we've had a sucky 12 months of, of zero commissions and scrapping to hold on to our jobs, 
Is all this budget, has it just been, Is if we use an analogy here, is there a big pipe of cash and COVID just had its claws around it and it's been building up and building up and swelling and it's all just about to shoot out the other end into our, <laughs> into our pockets? Is that what's going to happen, Victor? We've lost that was you. such a great visual. That was a great you visual. Really worked, you, 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 you really you worked that visual in. Uh, it's just funny the way you did that. Anyway, so... Can I take a step back here before before I get before I get excited with you and your visual here? Uh, the question should be is why has it increased? Like specifically, why has it increased? Why do you think I have a theory? Why do you think uh, it's increased by sixty three percent? I've just well, told you with my visual, the pipe, COVID holding the pipe, think, so, struggling, so you, the pipe is building so, up, so, Victor. It's going to blow, blow, let go, COVID. So and you just think boom, that was a massive thing? Boom, just an explosion a, of cash uh, out the other side. It's just going, it's just, I like that. I, it's like, uh, I don't know if you have in the US, you have the, in the UK, we had the crystal maze growing up. You into this big crystal thing, you're trying to grab cash and shove it in your pockets. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, yeah. That, is that what we're heading towards? That's what I think has happened, Victor. Uh, uh, Man, that's a good visual. Again, two visuals for one. I love that pipe and the crystal ball thing. Uh, So here's what I think is happening. I think I got a different theory. Mine is not as exciting as yours. (laughs) Mine is more like less meetings, right? You know, the whole thing about, you know, know, getting people together in a room. But I also think, nobody's talked about this well, but I wonder if there's been a flattening of the organization, at least the decision-making process, because of this. You know, we can't get, you know, what is it, Gardner or Forrester says 11 buyers in a B2B cycle, right? So I'm wondering if, I, I, I'm trying to remember where I read it, that there's less people involved, you know, post-pandemic mm-hmm. in the buying decision. And I think decisions are being made faster. That's kind of what I think it is. And to answer your question is, so I think, I don't know about a boom, I don't know about the, uh, the, 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 the globe with the money floating around or the giant pipe about to burst, but I do think that sales cycles will shorten and they'll be actually able to sell more. I think it's an optimistic note. I like this. That was the least optimistic note and spin you could have put on this. I'm really excited about this. I genuinely feel if you've got, it depends on the product that you're selling, right? And clearly the service. Some of this is going to be subjective uh, as opposed to completely measurable. It's going to affect some markets more uh, than others. But if you're in the right place at the right time, this could be a massive boom of, we, we've needed to upgrade our servers. We've not had enough space in, in the, the whole system has been on its ass for 12 months now. And we've finally just had the budget approved from the from the executives from the C-suite to, to expand. We're not just expanding the three, two or three servers that we were going to buy. We've now, because we're behind, we're going to have to buy 15 from you. I feel like that, if in the right space, the right product, the right time, that's what's going to happen in, in a whole bunch of different industries. Now, if you're selling... Uh, conference space at hotels. There might be a bit of a boom as people catch up for the next six months and then it might go back to normal or it might even go worse than what it was prior. People don't want to travel uh, post-COVID. But I definitely feel that there's there's some kind of hold up in the marketplace and it's it's slowly kind of, um, you know, it's almost like a, a Band-Aid being pulled off as opposed to the, uh, the tap being open slowly. I know what you mean about the pressure valve. My only caution with that, if, if the tone is cautiously optimistic, here's why. Last month, <clears throat> they projected a million jobs, right? As far as people getting employed, a million jobs uh, uh, taken up. And the number was 266,000, falling way short of the projected number. And I'm wondering what is happening, why that number is. Now, here we've been talking about uh, people are getting too much stimulus money, nobody wants to go back to work type of thing, right? <clears throat> So I'm wondering also is that, you know, are people still going to kind of like still hold back? 
a little bit. Do you know what I mean? That 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 post-traumatic stress disorder, in other words, post-traumatic dollar, you know, savings disorder, where we go, eh, let's kind of hold off a little bit. So I think you're right. I if if, if what they say is true that you know there is going to be a massive boom but i also think that people are going to walk it back slowly into the market so that's what i think well i think that's more for the mm. business to consumer space right car sales are you down so? um, <clears throat> loads of clothing brands and and retail in the uk have <clears throat> shut the doors good forever. point marks and spencer a huge part of the uk high street they've just closed like a third of stores they had like a 200 million dollar 200 million pound loss um, but the grocery business, Ocado, was up like 7%. They were doing really well. So it, you know, it clearly depends what you're in, what you're selling, and, and the service that you're providing. But if you can provide any service as a B2B salesperson right now, where you know, unfortunately, you can you can reduce the amount of jobs that people have, whether that be automation of uh, industrial automation, physical robotic automation, software automation. I think you're going to have an absolute killing in the next few quarters as people, um, you know. Maybe people have been let go. Uh, the redu- staffing is, is reduced, and so this, but they still want to increase output because, uh, of course, every every organization wants to kind of up the numbers every single quarter, so they can leverage your software, your robotics, your tools to do so. I think people in those positions are going to absolutely crush it. I, you know, it's funny because uh, two things we have to remind ourselves: even though it's B to B, it's usually B to B to C, right? The B to B. But you actually have to have a C at the end to make it all work to have the pull factor. But 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 I but I think again you're absolutely right. Is that a lot of companies are realizing, hey, because of this pandemic, I think we want to restructure our business. So in case this does happen again, and maybe more automation tools, more service tools, you might be absolutely right on that. That's a really good point. Cool. I hate to admit it again, but that <laughs> is a good point. So anyway, uh, anyway, how about this one? Oh, I, this this was just for you, Will. This one was just for you. I I, I found this one and I go, yeah. Yeah, this is for Will. Uh, AI, the title is, it's an article by Drew Robb. Got this out of CIOinsight.com. It's titled AI and Machine Learning, dot, dot, colon, Substance Behind the Hype, question mark. It's become inevitable, says the article, in IT. Something new appears on the horizon. The hype machine ramps up to warp speed. In some cases, companies, read this is my favorite part. In some cases, companies relabel their existing wares to align with the new term without making any actual change to the product. Let me just stop there, Will. I knew it. I knew it would get that reaction from you, man. I'm sick of hearing people pitch me on even sponsoring the podcast of, Will, we've just introduced AI into our software as a service uh, product. Have you really introduced anything? No. Have you, have you as, as you enjoy me saying, have you bollocks introduced anything? Yeah. But you know, it's funny because I, I, I think I've trapped a lot of people with this statement. I said, is it AI? Is it machine? I mean, I said, is it really AI like machine learning or is it just an advanced predictive analytics algorithm? Mm-hmm. And they go, what? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's just a predictive analytics algorithm. That it's just that it's just it's just mathematics, right? That's yep. all it is. Just math. Is it is the machine really learning? And nine out of ten and not more can't answer that question. Yep. So when I found this, I go, uh, this is what Will's always been talking about. That line that in some cases companies companies relabel their existing wares to align with a new term without making any actual change to the product. The article continues. Sometimes the hype is justified. Ooh, but here was a brutal comma after that. Often it is not hyped. How about artificial intelligence, machine learning? Question mark. Gartner believes they are overhyped according to its recent Gartner Magic Quadrant for data science machine learning platform. Boom! 
I mean, they did they just drop the hammer? Did Gardner just drop a hammer on that market or what? Or is it just me? Look, this it's I I get it. Are we touched on this lip before we recorded? Of I like to sell. How to how to phrase like Apple are the kings of not bullshitting, but putting a, an incredible spin on products and services. I was talking to my dad about this this morning uh, for, for one reason and another, right? And I was talking about the Steve Jobs uh, iPod announcement, and I've seen, I've watched the keynote loads of times because there's so many classic lines in there, right? And he, it, the marketplace is banging on about, well, we have 20 gigabytes, or we have 40 gigabytes, well, we've got a color screen, well, we've got this. And Steve Jobs just pulls the iPod out of his pocket and goes, this is 20,000 songs in my pocket. Or, you know, however, he, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it slightly wrong there. Well, putting a slight bit of spin on your marketing and on your, on your pitch has, can have a tremendous difference to it. But when you have machine learning and you call it AI, that to me dilutes the rest of everything that you say. When you have a product that is a soft online software product and you start banging on about digital transformation you're diluting everything else that you say you're just jumping on buzzwords it, it's almost so unimaginative that anyone who has any budget a cio a cto they're just going to see straight through it anyway now it might help digital transformation might help when you're selling things internally to some numpties uh somewhere within the the business that you need to get them on board just to get some budget but to actual decision makers, to people who know what they're talking about, to experts, technical, when you're selling to, from a technical sales perspective to someone's technical in an account, all this stuff it just sounds like marketing hype. And an actual engineer wouldn't use these terms because they're not the appropriate terms for the technology. So if you're a sales engineer, if you're like me, you know, I'm clearly not a doctor, but I'm selling medical devices to uh, surgeons. My goal was to speak as much on their level. Uh, they might know well, they do know from the patient goes into the operating room, procedure, anesthetics, uh, before, after, post-operative, how to follow up. Well, I know how this endoscope goes in a patient, is used, and comes out. And that's, that my knowledge is so fine and narrow that I can have an intelligent conversation about that segment of the surgery, not the rest of it. Well, when you're having those kind of conversations, you look like a dick if you're using these kind of words, uh, these kind of terminologies when the person that you're engaging with um, knows and can just see through them. So... That's a bit of a rant, but yeah, this is all marketing as opposed to sales, I think. I think so. You know, I I actually had an article in here uh, from one of our favorite customers, uh, our our, um, topics, companies, uh, Chorus.ai. Chorus.ai, let me just kind of look at it real quick again, because I didn't include it. It came out with a product called Momentum. Uh, Title is uh, Chorus.ai launches Momentum to transform relationship visibility inside the CRM. They're going to put the R back in CRM with this product. And I, let me just touch on it real quick, but I didn't want to include it because I know I would set you off. Because, <laughs> I, you know, it's, I got I sent something by Chorus.ai, yeah. and I didn't include it because I thought it was not, the the uh. premise is not bullshit, but the way it was worded was, so I didn't include it either. Yeah, so it was, but, you know, they're trying to include more social media, right? IoT device, IoT devices was actually a, a unique twist on, on getting more data. But none of these companies are really showing me. I go to their websites and none of these companies are really showing me, all right, walk me through how you're using all this stuff. Yeah. Okay, you're aggregating the data for all these different data sources, but tell me how the AI is helping me. Besides the basics, you know, priority, point scoring customers, and things of that nature, I'm not getting that part and that's why I agree with you. And apparently Gartner agrees with you also that a lot of this might be just hype and maybe you know, it's not ready for prime time yet. I've just not seen any reports from end users. 
Because people email me all the time of, Will, you should check out this. This is really cool. Uh, when Gong first launched and it was in beta and kind of secret behind the scenes, I don't even think they had a website at one point. And I got a few emails from people saying, this is sick. This is really cool. I'm sending me screenshots and stuff. Well, no one's ever sent me a screenshot of an AI bot, which we talked about last week, right? Uh, I forget the terminology now, but like, correctly predicting something or correctly nudging me in the right direction. No one's ever sent me that. So as far as I'm concerned, it may physically exist, but if it's if people were getting massive benefit out of it, people would be sharing it with me because it, it's interesting. It, it's fascinating. Um, so well, to, to, to your point, I mean, when you look at, uh, you know, Gong or any other company like Gong, uh, you see a lot of, they're at, I think the good part is they're analyzing data, right? Mm -hmm. Some of the stuff that's happening, words being used. But that to me is still like predictive analytics, right? That's probability, right? Of something happening because certain things happen. That's not true AI or machine learning. As you're saying, uh, the bot's not getting smarter every time it has a conversation. So when the bot starts getting smarter every time it has an interaction, then maybe I'll believe there's some true AI there. And look, I, I'm super blunt about this. And this will come within five years. I will go mm. on the record on this show right now and uh, uh -oh. Uh -oh. chances of me coming back to this in five years of time and finding this moment uh, where I was correct uh, is incredibly slim. So I can say what I want, really. But within five years, if Gong, Chorus, whoever, there's a few of competitors, uh, Salesforce have a product similar on the marketplace right now, if they can truly source out what makes a good conversation, uh, especially from an SDR perspective of, hello, we do, yada, yada, we like to book you with this, uh, a simple conversation, just booking a phone call, maybe not a complex sales conversation with multiple people engaging and interacting. But if they can really suss out what works, voice emulation is so simple to do that you don't need a real person anymore. And that might be the end goal for all of these companies, right? So if you can say, um, you know, Boris.ai will just do your SDR team calls for you, and maybe it's, an SDR will book calls. Uh, will book a follow-up call on three percent of meetings, and Boris will do it on two. But it can scale infinitely. Well, then mm -hmm. you've won the game. So yeah, if they've got all this technology, if they've got this data, if they've got the analytics, if they've got the AI behind it, well, adding a a, a text to voice transcription layer because they've got everyone's text uh, kind of engagements throughout the platform, and they've got all the buyers uh, or the, the kind of decision maker conversations. They can easily add a, a voice element on top of this add you know, the, the subtleties of, of what Google are doing with their AI and, and their voice kind of uh, bots of you know ums and ahs and pauses and thinking and stuff like that. Could it, not easy, but it could be implemented. And until that happens, I don't believe that anyone has any of this stuff because like, why wouldn't you use it to build that like, immediately? Right. Like, you know, if you had all this technology, that's what you'd be building. You wouldn't just be I mean, Google isn't Google, isn't Google, I mean, Google is, the, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think now, is Google's the only... I guess, simulation I've ever seen yep. of an intelligent bot having a conversation. Yeah, the, the, the classic demo yeah. I'll put in the show notes this episode is um, where, what I need to do is get my laptop hooked up to the mixer here so we can do videos in line with the right. with the show. Okay. I'll work on that for next week. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, the classic Google uh, version of this. I think it's called Duplex. I think it's called yep. the Duplex, Duplex demo. They, yeah, it rings Duplex up to demo. book an appointment to the hairdressers <clears throat> and then the yep. hairdressers, oh, what day is you free? And the bot's going, hmm, what um, days am I free? I'll just pull up my calendar. And then it's looking through the calendar on the user's phone. It goes, um, how about Wednesday? About two-ish. And it's it's not perfect, but it's pretty good. And obviously, what, what, it's a, it's a did demo you, did, put out by Google. So you know, they could have done a thousand takes and got the, the best yeah. one, right, obviously. 
But did you see the one where he's trying to get a reservation at a restaurant and it's an Asian restaurant and the lady has a heavy accent? No, I've not seen that one. And, 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 the, and the machine, as you say, susses out the actual conversation time frame. It's amazing. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. All right, let's move on. Okay. Your turn. I'm going to bring this up probably every other week until it exists okay, in the marketplace, <laughs> right? And we're going to talk about it because this has got to be the future of a huge segment of B2B sales. By the way, can I, can I hit you with the pun? You're going to will it into existence. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't going Come to on, be, Come was, on, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Come on, right? Give me a 1 to 10 score on that one. Give me a 1 to 10 score. I want a 1 to 10 score on that like one. Like 2? Oh, you're cheap. All right. I've, I've, got, I've got I've got a pun here. Audience. I've got a pun midway through this that'll make you laugh though. So we're gonna talk right. about B2B marketplaces. The article is from digital digitalcommerce360.com. It's entitled uh, getting B2B marketplaces ready for going prime time in 2021. And everything that we talk about in the show, all these articles are available in thisweekinsales.com as well or over on that website. So again, Gartner, quote from the article, Gartner believes so. It was predicted that by 2023, at least 70% of enterprise marketplaces launched will support B2B transactions. Nobel Prize winner in economics, Alvin Roth says, successful marketplaces must include three things. <laughs> <laughs> these three things, Victor, these three things are how I like my women. Thick, uncongested, and safe. Keep going, man. Keep going. So for a B2B marketplace to arrive <laughs> and for all to start selling... Let us, let us define what thick, uncongested, and safe means. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, sure, mate. I'll I'm get sorry. into it. So the, the reason I bring up this article, the reason I thought this was interesting and valuable was... Okay, Will, you're sold on the idea of marketplaces. Well, what what needs to happen for this to become reality? So <clears> here we have a Nobel Prize winner telling us what needs to happen. So the marketplace hey, well, needs to be. Before I don't want to interrupt, but can you explain? Because remember, sometimes people don't listen to all our podcasts, and this is kind of a continuation of what you've sure. been ranting on about. So hit them with the definition of what we're talking about with the marketplaces. So I feel again, this is a this is a gut feeling as opposed to I have hard data on this. To be clear. That sales is going to go down two paths. There's going to be B2B salespeople who will sell on the back of becoming experts in their space. I want to buy the screen that you have in your background, Victor. You use the screen regularly. I'm going to contact you and you're going to sell it to me because I don't want to go to the company directly because I'm just going to get hit with some customer service nonsense or I'm going to get just panged over to some videos. I want to speak to an, a, a user of the product, a salesperson who uses the product, a domain expert. So there's going to be a whole ton of product experts turned B2B sales professionals, that's going to be one end. And there's not going to be much of a gray area in between the two of these areas. The other side of the B2B marketplace, and this is where maybe SaaS software products end up, are marketplaces. So think Amazon for CRM. Think eBay for HR software. There's going to be, and it'll be, it'll be small niches originally, and then there'll be an Alibaba will come along, or there'll be an Amazon will come along. It'll just scoop everyone up, whether it be acquisitions or just sheer um, the dominance in the marketplace that you become, uh, you become like, I will Google this. I will look for this on Amazon, uh, whatever it is. And there's not going to be much of a gray area in between. This is where used car salespeople are going to be in between, but they're still trying to blag people and, and bullshit people. So you're going to have domain experts and you're going to have marketplaces. And I'm, I'm, I, I, again, this is a gut feeling. There's some data on this. Gartner are somewhat agreeing with, uh, by 2023, 70% of enterprise marketplaces launched will support B2B transactions because most of these marketplaces right now are B2C. Does that summarize things? Yes, it does perfectly. Okay. So 
just to continue from this conversation, because I want I want the audience to see this happening so that they can react to it. Because maybe you want to be the key rep for your organization who has a bit of an online presence, who does speak at events or, or anything like that. I used to speak at all kinds of events at uh, medical device conferences. Um, and we used to go and do live training and stuff like that. You want to be cut if you don't want to do anything. It would be wise if you want to have a long-term career in B2B sales to start picking up on some of these things because then you might become the person on the marketplace that people want to ask and get answers from, who want to, they want to engage with you specifically. Because um, otherwise, you're just going to be a commodity seller, which will then be dumbed down and dumbed down and dumbed down and commissions taken away until it's customer service. So I want people to see this coming, this what I think is going to be a revolution in B2B sales. Um, so that you can act and, and make the most of your careers and, and leverage it as a tool as opposed to being wiped out by it. So with all that said, this Nobel Prize winner in economics says, for a marketplace to exist and be successful, it needs three things. It needs to be thick, which means there needs to be enough participants in the marketplace for it to thrive. And clearly, this is going to be the most difficult thing, right? Enough sellers or one big enough seller and then uh, enough customers already on the marketplace. And this is where the difficulty of getting that ball uh, kind of spinning is. The marketplace also needs to avoid what it calls congestion, which is about balancing both the offer and the demand side of the marketplace. So there's not too many merchants selling that increases, uh, which basically just skews off and off uh, out of control. If you've got too many sellers, you just become commodity pricing and you can uh, go on and the, 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 the buyers are going to have too much of an advantage in the marketplace. Um, but on the flip side of that, you've got to have enough sellers that there's enough selection of products that it becomes a marketplace as opposed to just a collection of single products across categories. And then you've also got to have this idea of safety. And I think this is where a marketplace for the consumer really starts to make sense. So this is where all parties feel secure enough to make decisions on their best interests. If I buy something on eBay, I know that if I just get shipped a brick and I think I bought an iPad, eBay will just refund me the money. I don't even have to return the brick. Um, and it's massively, I don't know if you, I, I sell crap on eBay all the time rather than just uh, kind of binning it, um, especially like studio stuff that we replaced and things like that. And it's massively skewed towards the buyer side. There's not that much safety for the seller. If the buyer says, you've sent me a brick, then you're probably getting ripped off as a seller. Um, and the, the, you know, there's not much that the buyer has to do to, to prove otherwise. So this, you know, there's got to be a back and forth with some of this. But that idea of, hey, I don't really trust the pesky salespeople at one, two, three, XYZ company, but I trust the marketplace that they're on. Well, that allows me then to make purchases that I perhaps wouldn't do otherwise. Um, and it takes away some of the risk of buying where, you know, it's a lot of it in, B2, in B2C, it's I don't want to lose my money. I've worked damn hard for this money. I don't want to lose it. In B2B, it's, it's, it's a loss of face within the organization. I don't want to make a stupid purchase. I don't want to look like a dick in front of my boss and I don't want him, to, him, him or her to sack me or, you know, look down on me because I want their respect in, in, the, in the office, right? You can then leverage the fact that, well, well, we bought it from the marketplace and we can blame them as opposed to we bought it direct and you can blame me. So I feel like there's benefits of both sides on all of this in B2B sales. And for so many transactions, as we talk about week on and week, um, week after week on the show of the average deal size being bought online with no salespeople involved whatsoever is going up and up. I feel like a marketplace or two is where this can really kind of like skyrocket and it will become the norm eventually. I, you know, I think it's interesting when he talks about I, the, 
The thick one I get, right? Enough participants in the market on both sides, buyer and seller side. The safety part, totally get. I want to make sure that I'm not ripped off. The congestion part is the interesting piece because I'm wondering, you know, from a Nobel Prize winner in economics, you know, he's almost talking about it's like limited capitalism. Like it's not, it's very not free market. But I, I get what he's saying is that if there are too many competitors, it'll drive the price down. But isn't that what's going to happen anyway? Because then, if not, who decides what the right number is? You know what I mean? Well, it, and when you have it's, such it's, a diverse ecosystem, I think what he's ecosystem. saying is, if you've got thirty buyers and five hundred mm-hmm. sellers, then the market influences. Sure, we've got uh, outright capitalism, but the 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 the, the power of, of the buyer versus the seller just gets disrupted. But if you've got a thousand buyers and only three sellers, because we're constricting it too much and it is congested, then you've you've not got all right, capitalism, and you know we can we can debate on the philosophy of capitalism another sure. time or later on in the show. Like, but that that bal- I think it's talking about the balance between the two, and it, that's going to be yeah. subjective. Uh, or you know, you it know, is. Maybe it is. It's, maybe it's objective. Maybe you can measure. Maybe you can find. Well, the marketplace makes more revenue when we have X versus Y, and obviously the marketplace. That's what they're going to care about. Yeah. Well, when you look at Amazon, I mean, who knows how many suppliers they have? We probably know how many buyers they have, but it's like it's very Darwinian. If you think about it, right? So I think, anyway, that's an interesting point, but it's a different perspective, but the end result is still the same, that buyers are going to go direct to marketplaces. On that, we both agree. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Um, as, uh, the, the hardest thing is getting that initial uh, traction, getting that marketplace where everyone can get along and, and compete and, and get enough buyers there. Because that, that's once you've established that, you've, you've won the game. Mm-hmm. You, you are eBay. You are Amazon. You are Alibaba. Okay, talking about price and cash, Buy now, pay later. Is this right for B2B, Victor? And I'm assuming the companies that are in this article are ubiquitous across uh, from the UK to the US, Europe as well. And this is from paymentsjournal.com. So are you familiar with Klarna, the company? I am not. Not okay. until you post it in the article. No. So I'll give context then. Klarna, I see all the time when I'm buying stuff. So if I'm buying a computer, I just bought some new hard drives for our network storage. Um, Klarna was saying you do the checkout process and the very last step of the process, Klarna are not part of the company that I buy from. It's a service that's added onto the top of it. And you can buy now, pay six months or buy now, pay in a kind of like spread out. Now, I want to get your thoughts on this, which so I'll run through some of these points and I'll get your thoughts at the end, right? Because Klarna is also available if you want to buy a pair of trainers. Now, if you can't afford a pair of trainers and you have to spread out the cost, you should probably not mm. be buying stupidly expensive trainers. So we'll get your that thoughts right. on that in a second, Victor. Okay. And that, that's and there's regulation involved in this, which is coming in in the UK. A lot of this is changing. Um, did you have a trend of payday loans in the US? Trend of payday loans? Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's happened here in the US. Yes, so absolutely. In the UK, they've basically just been cut off. They're now dead. You can't really do payday okay. loans anymore because it was yeah, the same I, kind I, of thing of if you can't afford to get to the end of the month to buy the stuff that you're buying, you shouldn't probably, you should probably not be buying it. You know, you shouldn't be taking a loan to get mm-hmm. to the end of the month. So some Correct. of this kind of cycles back around. But what I want to talk about here is, is this right for B2B? So putting all the consumer side of things to one uh, to one side for a second. So Klarna from this article at Payments Journal, Klarna's recently raised $1 billion and is now valued at over $30 billion. So clearly the company's rapidly, um, to raise a billion dollars, you're, you're rapidly going towards IPO or a massive acquisition, right? PayPal has a service called Afterpay. A bunch of other companies are generating buzz in the space. And the B2B e-commerce payment market is apparently, according to this article, $4 trillion a year 
and growing and is ripe for transformation because it just hasn't transformed. It's just been this slow, steady build over time. And it goes on to talk about financing for small to medium-sized businesses. Now, I've never had to finance anything in my small to medium-sized business, my uh, SME. But my dad, uh, my dad hasn't either, I, I, I don't think. But my dad owned a, a manufacturing company. So he had a press shop, um, like 200 ton, 300 ton metal presses, all kinds of like lathes, machining tools. And he managed to get them from the company that he left to start his company. He managed to get those uh, that tooling and, and all that put across. But when I hear this, I think of him. So if he hadn't have been in the right place at the right time to bring all the equipment and tooling across into his own organization, he probably would have had to get some kind of finance or or loan or whatever it is uh, to build his company. And there's tons of small businesses that are you know, hiring salespeople that may be up to their eyeballs in debt. So some of this will be relevant. And a final thing, just to kind of add, finish painting the picture here. According to Biz2Credit Small Business Lending Index, overall loan approval rates in December 2020 were down 50% versus the previous year. So all of this, that bit of a rant there, all of this, banks are lending less money to small businesses. Now, COVID payments and other stuff to one side, because um, that is clearly going to be somewhat temporary, right? We can't do that forever. So all that to one side. Just traditional business loans are typically down, especially in the UK. I'm pretty confident in the US as well. Do we need another option, Victor? If we are struggling to get small business loans, we'll talk about it from the perspective of a, an entrepreneur first, and we'll come back to a salesperson who might be selling this as a service. We're struggling to get loans. Is it a valuable service to buy a B2B product and be offered, whether it's from the company selling it or from a company like Klarna, who, I guess, buy the debts and then manage the payments after the fact? Is it a valuable service to be offered where you can pay off these uh, B2B purchases over longer terms? Absolutely. Yes. How's that? <laughs> the, the, you know, the, well, yeah, I mean, anything that would help the market get going, right? Because as you pointed out, uh, your dad was in a fortunate situation, but if he didn't have the money, you know, and he needed the actual manufacturing equipment, he wouldn't move. So that's part of it. The The other side of the, the balance sheet is that these companies are taking a great risk. So I think they have to kind of qualify some of these opportunities. But I think it's great that that there is something now, because, you know, it's funny, we, we, we give out loans for cars, you know, for trainers, as you point out, all these things that really don't produce any income. You know, a car, basically, you lose value as soon as you drive it off the lot. We know the whole riff on that. It just depreciates. Isn't it nice that there's money available for people immediately who want to launch a company? Now, that immediacy comes with, with a little asterisk at the bottom. Make sure you think this through clearly. <laughs> because you're about to sign your name on a dotted line. I would love to see, uh, you know, I had that show Life or Debt. Yep. And, you know, we had those people who did, you know, Chapter 11 or Chapter 13 bankruptcies. So it'd be interesting to see how, what's the recourse for some of these companies when they don't, when the person doesn't pay back and what actually happens to the individual's credit scores and so forth and so on. And much like a credit card, I think it's a valuable service. I mean, again, if we're, we give people money to buy a $500 dinner they can't afford, because once it's eaten, it's done. Why can't I give small business owners money quickly so they can, you know, start building? I love it. So I, I think some of the, uh, when a bank won't loan to you, they're loaning to the company. I think this, these smaller, the, the proposition for this, the, 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 the buy now, pay later for B2B is that it's on you as the, the founder of the company or the, the executive, the managing director, CEO. It's a personal, essentially a personal loan 
for the business via secured by you, which would be more too complicated for a bank to to be messing around with and would take too much time for them to to go out. And this is what I wanted to touch on, Victor, of you kind of touched on it there. You kind of mm. I know clearly we know where you're gonna I go do. with this, but I think this is valuable for the audience to hear. Mm. If you are buying a pair of trainers and Klarna pops up and the trainers are $150 and you go, well, it would be nice to spread out this this cost over mm -hmm. the course of the next six mm -hmm. months. Does that mean you can't afford the trainers? I think it does. I agree. I think it means you can. It's I not, think it does. I mean, I don't want. I don't want it to. Look, we used to have these. Um, what were they called? I forgot. Layaways. Did you ever have like layaways? No. Layaway is that. Let's say I want to buy a pair of trainers, mm -hmm. right? But I start the payment process. I don't get the trainers yet. I got to keep giving them ten bucks every week until I hit my number, and then I get my trainers. Yep. Well, today it's reverse, right? Mm -hmm. You get the trainers with a small payment up front. And so I'm just saying that, you know, after we made about five or 10 payments, you're like, did I really want those trainers? <laughs> you know, in the layaway scenario. So I don't know. It's, it's an interesting trend. I think if you, can, if you can't buy trainers off the bat, I mean, you shouldn't even afford it, uh, buy it. But then why do we keep giving people credit cards? Why do we keep doing it? You know, because some people should not have credit. Yeah. Credit rating, it's a, it's a scam. I was going to say scheme is literally a scam. Oh, you, you want credit. Oh, well, you've got to take out this card, which is going to hammer you if you go over, because it's the only one you can get. It's going to hammer you if you go over, uh, you know, if you don't pay it back in time. Then you use that to build your credit rating so that then you can become a great, a good citizen and you can we can loan you even more money, which that's, we can charge that's interest big, One of the biggest lies, you know, yeah. it's funny because I, I have this argument with friends and I get the argument from both sides. Debt-free versus leveraged debt. I get it, right? Uh, I, I'm a debt-free. That's my philosophy, right? And then whatever money I have left over, I can just leverage all the hell I want. I can invest in what I want. So in other words, no debt, then use the extra money to do what you want to do. You feel that sense of freedom. A, a lot of people like to leverage debt. And, and I get that piece because they want to get going. But this is different because we're talking about you're good. If this is for the purpose of building, this is where I think it, you know, it diverts. There's a divergence between trainers and building. But to your point, uh, last week my wife told me a story. She, uh, we go, we have a, like a Home Depot here, uh, Lowe's, where you buy your lumber and all that stuff. And so we buy and we pay the credit card off at the end of the month every single time. Well, something happened in her schedule. She didn't get a notification. She's three days late. Oh, three. shit. Never missed a payment. Now, it's like it's like a thousand bucks on the card, right? And my wife hates paying one penny <laughs> of fees. I mean, that's how she is. Like, ah. So not only did she have to pay the uh, the percentage based on the... Because uh, she thought, okay, I'm three days late. They'll just charge me for those three days that I'm late. No, 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 no. It's not how it works. Uh, I forgot what the interest rate was, but then they slapped on top of it a $30 fee. So it was $30 plus the actual percentage. And she was livid, man. She was livid. And so, I mean, think about and now take that to the extreme, and now you've just taken out a hundred thousand dollar loan, dude. What's the penalty? I, I can't think of anything worse. So, and and on context here, when I was a student, I was constantly in my overdraft. Every time I'd go in my overdraft, they charged me thirty quid for being like twenty mm. quid into the overdraft. Halifax Bank in the oh. UK could go and f themselves because they've had so much cash from me, and <laughs> they shouldn't. I shouldn't have had an overdraft. As a student, I didn't need one. They offered me one. I was like, "Yeah, two grand, three free money." They're like, "They're like, oh yeah, it's, it's free money. We've got to pay it back." Blah, blah, blah. Terms and conditions apply. Was just, if I didn't have it, I wouldn't have spent it. Mm. I would have just drank you know, less for a few months, you know, and then that would have you, solved the issue. It was such a scam. But since then, Victor, I've ha I've got no credit cards. Mm. I've got no debt. 
I don't owe anyone anything. I buy my cars in cash, all that kind of stuff. The business has zero debt. Even contracts that we have, um, we've got one long-standing contract, which you you know the the, the gist of. Above than that, I've got no long-standing contracts. I don't owe anything anyone. I feel so free on that basis. That's the key word. And look, that's and, the key word. And that's come from someone who I, I never had a credit card. I never had any massive debt. So it's one thing for me to say this. It's another if you're really struggling, right? And your your TV show kind of dove into some of this, right? Um, so I appreciate if you're really struggling right now and you're in your sales role and you really, you're hustling to get out of debt, good on you. Yeah, um, but not I mean, getting into debt in the first place. If there's any youngins listening to this right now, that is got to be the, I can't think of better financial advice than that. If you can't afford it, to pay it in cash, you probably can't afford it. Minus a house. A house is slightly different um, with a mortgage. But even that, I don't want a mortgage. I don't want to, I don't want to be paying something at interest for 30 years. When you put it like that, it's stupid. Now, and, and by the way, you know, I think we we all started in the same place, right? That we all had a mortgage at one time. We probably all had car payments at one time. We just worked towards paying them off. Uh, I was at another podcast as a guest, and I made the statement. I, I think it holds true. When I did the TV show, 75% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, mm-hmm. 75. I think post-COVID, that's probably like 80%, right? And too often, and I'm talking to the youngins out there, the, the young folk out there, I said, stop trying to impress other people. Because the majority of people are broke. 80% are living paycheck to paycheck. Who are you trying to impress? And that's what kills me all the time. Who are we trying to impress when the majority of people are broke? And I think you lose that freedom. See, that was the word for me, man. So, But I can see why you would use Like I said, I look at a company like this and B2B leveraging debt to grow a business. I'd roll the dice on that. Sure. I say yay. And, and, you know, appropriately, and other caveats, this is not financial mm. advice kind of, of apply. Mm-mm. But yeah, this all clicked for me. And I, cause I, we're dwelling on this slightly, but I think this is really valuable for anyone who is is from that kind of blank state, uh, blank slate right now, perhaps, is being offered credit cards, hasn't quite taken them, been offered car payments. In the UK, we have PCPs, car, uh, car payment plan, maybe that's what it is. And they're becoming more and more ubiquitous. Well, I buy cars that are two years old, right? Like, that's BMW I got. It was uh, just 18 months old. It done, like, say, 6,000 miles, whatever. Essentially brand new. Yeah, you have to run them into 3,000 miles before you can start ragging the nuts off it anyway. And it was someone who'd clearly had a, a PCP. They took all the debt. They took the the fact that the car depreciates massively. And the, I got the um, the original invoice with the car and all the paperwork. And it was like a the BMW was like a 45 grand car. And I got it for like 20 something. It's just insane. To, to, but people wanted brand new car to impress their friends because it's a new car. Um, and, and, you know, the change the job and change them every two years. And, and people like me come along and, and take advantage of it. You know what really pisses me off about college? I'm going to go on a mini rant here. Okay. Just a mini one, I swear. You know, first of all, college is overpriced. Now, I'm not going to be the one that says college is not necessary. I'm the guy that has an engineering degree, and I'm telling you, it's paid off in, in spades. But colleges are overpriced. Then they have well, the audacity. Let's, let's just stop on that. I'll, I'll, let you, I'll let you continue right. But I think this is, re- this is we, we can be objective mm. about this. Sure. If college university is to get you your first job and get you that kind of on it gives you a benchmark of you can then compete with people who are trained to a certain standard. Well, if it costs in the UK, I spent like I think it was 1500 quid a year. That was what it was capped at. Now it's capped at 7500 a year. Well, how much is that in US dollars by the way? Say so I probably paid about 2 and a half grand uh, to $2,500 a year and right now it's capped at 7 and a half thousand dollars pounds so it's about like 10 11 grand. Um 
it's the capped at that rate. So the average per the average kid coming out now is coming out with say two uh, dollars, even though I should be using pounds mm. because I'm, I'm talking. Mm. I'm, I'm kind of I'm adjusting my conversation for you here, Victor. But talking in Thank dollars, you, I appreciate that. Um, I'm probably the majority of the audience. The, right. the average kid's probably coming out with 30, 40 grand's worth of debt. Well, if you would have worked that period, done an apprenticeship, done something, it's different if you're an engineer and you're building bridges, you've got to have some kind of qualification or if you're a doctor. But for most people, you could have worked for three years as an apprentice, earned money and still been at the same frigging place because who are you going to hire? The kid who's done all of the work and has a track record or some schmuck just come out of university. So the, the, you can be subjective with the price of this because if you come out of university in America with 200 grand worth of debt, and it's going to take you twenty grand. It's going to take you twenty years to pay it off. Well, then you bet you you start in twenty years behind yourself, aren't you? Sorry, mate. That, but I feel like I feel like putting numbers on that is really valuable. Well, the the average. I think the average, if I remember correctly, last time I looked, which is probably over a year ago, but I, I bet you the numbers are still in there. Uh, the average, depending on a private or public university, it's 20, 30, 40, up to fifty thousand per year. It could be that crazy. So you can graduate with. I think on average, people graduate like fifty, fifty-five thousand dollars of debt on average, okay? But it takes them, as you pointed out, so accurately 21 years to actually pay the thing off. And so, but what I was gonna say in my little rant is that colleges are overpriced because they're, they're building these buildings that make no sense that they gotta maintain them. So that wraps them in the cost. Second, they put like soft drinks all over the university. Thank you for that healthy piece, right? And then number three, they let people with credit card companies come on campus to sell you crap, you know, so you can get more in debt. I mean, there's just something wrong with that formula. That was my, that's the end of my Harvard rant. University post most of their lectures <laughs> online for yeah. free. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I, I, I forgot the, what the website is, but they have all these college courses for free if you want to learn even everything from AI to anything down, you can learn anything you want. Anyway, well, let's get back on track. Let's get back on track. Talking about us younguns, not you, Victor, here, unfortunately, mate. Okay. Us millennials. And this is a post from Customer Think. Uh, we won't dwell on this. This could be an hour-long conversation on in, in, yeah. its own right, I'm sure. The article is uh, entitled, Are You Adapting to Sell Effectively to Millennial B2B Decision Makers? And uh, I was just telling Victor before I clip record uh, with, and, and jumped on the show today, I did a webinar yesterday, and this is part of my pitch of the new product that we've got over at Sales.org of I'm a millennial. I'm a small business owner millennial. I am a customer for a lot of the people in our training programs. You have to sell to me differently than perhaps how you would even sell to Victor here. And, and this article from customerthink.com uh, shares some of the data. So it talks about millennials being, and I like this phrase, this is why I copied and pasted this into the doc specifically. Millennials are the first truly digital generation. So I had the internet like 13, 14, you know, within formative years. So my life had been growing up around the internet, right? So data from uh, the study on millennials, they want in descending order and preference to be contacted by 69% email, phone calls below that, text below that, face-to-face -face meetings below that, live video chats even below that, and social media at the very friggin' bottom. So I thought this was interesting of, mm -hmm. it strikes me of, yeah, millennials probably want to be contacted by the email uh, before the phone. Now, were you hey, by the way, were you surprised by that order? Yep. Because I'm a little surprised by it. So email what, what makes took... total sense, right? Social media being okay. at the very bottom didn't make sense to me. That That's a shocker. I thought for sure text messages, SMS would be higher. It would be like number one or number two. Sure. It might just be the the ability to communicate complex buying, selling information via mm -hmm. text is not very efficient. Right? Um, you you gotcha. can replace text via email and get a, a, a better 
um, flow of communication via not having to speak to someone on the phone. So maybe that ties into it as well. Um, and as I said, in this order here, face-to-face -face meetings were above live and video chats. So we shouldn't be too quick to discount this idea of going in and, and field sales, um, at least according to this study, with video chats being only one step above blasting someone on Twitter and trying to sell to them on there. Mm -hmm. And then the next yeah, thing true. that I thought was fascinating, and this goes mm -hmm. back to the marketplace, and I'm, I'm not letting this one die, Victor. We'll be banging about this go. for years. 80% of millennials admit that they check reviews and recommendations before making a buying decision. Were we checking these reviews, recommendations? I'd rather check them from a marketplace like Amazon that says verified customer next to it versus some blog that could be created or, or the, the vendor's website. So our website for sales.org has all kinds of reviews and stuff on it. They're all legit. There's a bunch of video reviews coming now uh, that I'm working on. Um, so if, you, if you're if you a member of the Selling Made Simple Academy or our previous products, uh, send me a video review of whether it's good or bad or indifferent. And uh, I've got something good to send you in the post in, uh, in, 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 in thanks for sending us the video reviews. Because obviously it's way harder to fake and bullshit a video review than it is um, a, a written one. But yeah, this is why Marketplace is so good because if they can be somewhat vendor neutral and they can have verified purchases on them, this is another kind of stamp in the, in the book of, of Marketplaces and why they're going to be successful. Because millennial buyers, myself included, I want to see reviews. I YouTube stuff before I buy it. What was I looking? My, my iPad died when I was doing this webinar yesterday, just 10 minutes before. So I was literally spent this morning going on YouTube. Do I need the new M1 iPad Pro or can I just replace it, my iPad, with the one that I had previously? I need reviews of real users in real life situations. And again, this is where the B2B space is going to go eventually. It has to. Um, just the, the network effects of it are just going to be so powerful. You know, uh, you millennials are somewhat egocentric, I think, in the sense that, you know, you're all proud of this. 80% of millennials want recommendations and reviews. Of course, it's not just millennials. I think it's everybody. Now that we have access to all this, we want more verification. So I think that's across the board, whether you're a Gen X, baby boomer, everything in between. I think everybody loves this. So, and by the way, I think it's a great idea. Uh, you know, when you look at reviews, I did the same thing when I was looking for a microphone. I went up on YouTube. And you start looking at the top 10 best recommended, and you just cross-reference some of those other videos. Yeah. You start narrowing it down. Then you go over to Amazon, check the reviews there. Then you go over to, you know, you do all these things. I think they called it the spindle effect when it comes to buying. Because you check one thing, then you go to another thing. They recommend something, you go to another thing, and it's just back and forth. So I think that's uh, everybody. And look, it, and this is why I preach all the time. Literally, I, pre I feel like I'm preaching this to you right now, Sales Nation, as you listen to this. Everyone who's, who's consuming This Week in Sales regularly, you want to be the person doing the review of your product. People want to see, you want people to see your face and go, oh, Victor does this, Will does this. I'll ask him, her, he, she, indifferent on what they think on stuff. And that's where the majority of your inbound leads are going to come from eventually if your business is doing it right. I'm talking about scaling business, Victor. Tell us about the next topic. Thank you for that intro. So anyway, I was reading this article here by uh, Harvard Business Review, Lisa Earl McLeod. And it's and it's titled, How to Scale Your Sales Team Quickly. I'm not going to go through all of it, but it talks about in the early days of an organization. Let me give you the preamble. People joined because they were passionate about the mission. But yet too often, as the team grows, the tether to the original vision weakens. Isn't that a beautiful line? The tether to the original vision weakens. And new salespeople aren't successful. To ensure this tetherment, made that word up, by the way, <laughs> to ensure your new sales team stays passionate, 
uh, follow these three tactics. Now, there's three, established storytelling, institutionalized deep discovery in your sales process, invested human-to-human sales enablement. The part that caught my attention was, number one, establish storytelling as a company norm, to which I always say, well, uh, can you give me an example? And the article actually did, which I love. The example is this. For example, when scaling the Hootsuite sales team, they trained sales managers to start each weekly meeting with a story about how their solution made a difference to the customers. This enabled new hires to deepen their understanding of the product impact, and it strengthens their connection to the founding vision. This makes more for a more effective uh, customer conversation. Will, I can't tell you how much I love that because new people coming on board don't have the stories. Mm-hmm. It is genius, simple genius to say, you know what, every week let's talk about a story, how it impacted a company, and then people who are listening to this story begin to develop their storylines, and they can pick and choose what type of stories they want to use in their sales conversations. What do you think of this? I think it's, like I said, I think it's brilliant. I can't, I'm just trying to Google the company because uh, they wanted me to be involved as an advisor. This was like years and years ago, but I'm, mm-hmm. and I'm failing them. I didn't take on the role, and I'm yeah. failing them right okay. now because I can't find the company. Okay. But they were building a, a sales enablement platform for just solely, which I thought was smart, mm-hmm. to capture seller stories. Because mm-hmm. you're right, salespeople change jobs every two years, 18 months or so. They're getting mm-hmm. all these customer testimonials, these customer stories, and they're just going, being wafted into the wind. This is intellectual property that companies should be almost forcefully collecting. This is something that they own as a company, um, or they should be trying to own as a company. And um, it's something that I, I'm really focused on right now of when we do our training, or where did this bit of training come from? Oh, well, there's this story of yada, yada, yada. It adds so much context to, and you've got to be able to tell a story in a succinct framework, and there's, you know, there's, the structure two stories that we can uh, talk about another time, the hero's journey and, and mm-hmm. uh, what's the guy's uh, Jacob, is it Jacob Campbell? Uh, Joseph. Joseph, Joseph Campbell. Campbell. He's got a great yep. book. Uh, he's got a series of yep. books on, on storytelling and the, uh, the story, te- the story archetypes. So that's got, right. there's a skill to it as well. Clearly, It's not just about right. documenting things and writing it down, but this company is doing a great job of giving you a platform of, you can even be on a call, click, I'm not sure, you know, it was almost like it was so seamless, the user experience, that you could do it almost in real time of this type of industry, this type of product, this objection at this moment in the sales cycle, here's a story of how we've overcome this, or here's a story of the, a previous customer who is the hero in the story, as opposed to the salesperson. That's the first mistake we make. Usually salespeople are, well, I solved this and this for the customer, and the customer doesn't give a shit. So it's a customer who's the hero in the story and a, you know, a story that you can read. Now, clearly, storytelling is better if you were the person involved in, in the process. But I still think it's incredibly effective to be like, oh, yeah, my colleague experienced this with one, two, three XYZ organization or customer or this thought leader. And then and, and tell a story that has been essentially recycled, rehearsed, refined over the the years that it's been in circulation within an organization. So I'm glad you stopped on this point, Victor, because the other two points are just corporate nonsense yeah. of yeah. deep discovery and invest in human human sales enablement. But the storytelling yeah. thing, totally underrated. It's IP that companies yeah. should be collecting, and it ha- has literal value to a team. But, but you, you said something important. You said that because of the turnover, what is it, a year, year and a half? People are turning over. So in order to, uh, you know, that whole time to value, again, they can figure out the product, how to use it. But the ability to tell a story 
from a similar company that impacted them in a similar way, that may impact them in a similar way, is what people need. So I love this. I, the fact that I saw, I see Grant Cardone do this with his team. Every morning, I, we, I mentioned this before, one of the things I admire about what he does with uh, him and Jared do down there is that every morning, boom, there's like a 15-minute rally cry. It's not a battle cry. Like, yeah, we're the greatest people yelling and chanting like, you know, uh, some Samoan wrestlers. <laughs> it's not that. It's really about, hey, here's what we did. Here's what we're trying to do. Here's a, here's a great story. Here's a customer who turned it around because they're using our platform. Get motivated. Get your asses on the phone. Let's go. Yeah, and I love that. What we need to do, Victor, me and you, is a is a spin-off product for us. Is to do mm. a build a collection of stories from successful salespeople mm. that are, mm -hmm. can be read in five minutes and put it in a a three six five journal, so that the audience every day can get a, a spark of motivation from the peers of listening to this week in sales who are having success in their sales role. Because I know that when I I I try and I walk the dog, get covered in shite mud hang out with the middle-aged women that i hang out with when i'm when i walk the dog but nothing come with them it's a bit awkward the dog has a good play i come in i dry him off because he's sopping i'm just i'm going to go down this pathway now i've going i've just bought a uh, vacuum uh, the opposite of a vacuum cleaner a hair dryer for the dog um because i've been telling him off and uh, not doing it well enough but he's been uh, just sat there all looking all miserable and cold in his in his damp kind of bed because he's um because he's all kind of wet and i've not done enough good enough job drying him off and then I'll make a coffee from our new coffee machine, Victor. You'll you'll be pleasantly hit, surprised to hear this. We got a, a um, espresso machine a couple of weeks ago, so I have a nice espresso. Uh, well, americano, top it up with hot water, right? Eighty degrees temperature. I knew it. I knew it. I'm telling you, it, it fits with the look, man. The beard, the beatnik look, and a little espresso on the side. Yep. It fits and perfectly. I'll sit with there your with my iPad Pro, which died yesterday before the webinar. Yeah. Complete pain in the ass. That's a rewire everything, and I will read a book for like 15 minutes and it's not necessarily a motivational sales book but a some kind of business book from someone i respect I, you know I, I read your books i was reading your book on um uh what's the, you, you the one you put me onto on one side it's like a pathway and a framework and on the other side you explain it what's it called oh the 52 model 52 yep. sales models so i was reading sales that models. i was re literally reading that this morning um, on my laptop and I was, I was going through it and just that little bit of motivation, those little bits of like, information just coming in bite-sized, I found that really motivating. So yeah. long story short. I think so, so, yeah, sometimes just new information into the brain motivates you. So I, so I love you, that. If you could, let me just Go finish ahead. this, because I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating this for, for the point here. But <laughs> if you could if you could contact a buyer, whether it's via LinkedIn, whether it's via them consuming your content, whatever it is, and you ha you can plan out their morning and they have five, 10 minutes where they're consuming content and they want that little bit of inspiration, that little bit of storytelling. If they're getting it from you as a content creator, salesperson, whether it be on your LinkedIn feed and they, they like it and just you know listen to it or watch it or it's a mini podcast episode that you're doing for your industry, whatever it is, if you are that person that the buyer turns to that bit of motivation or industry insight, like I turn to you with your book at this moment in time as I'm going through that and learning from it. That has incredible power when it comes to decision-making at all kinds of conscious and subconscious levels. If you, you, you're essentially mm -hmm. controlling the buyer's journey at that point. So that was the point of the, I, the story. I, I, I like when you can take people on an emotional journey. Like one of the things I have in my head is I have so many stories, right? And, I, and the thing is, sometimes the story is like right in front of you, Will, and you just got to mold it to what you need give you an example i'm in phoenix yesterday you're gonna laugh at this one this is a by the way this falls under towards the end of thisweekinsales.com you're getting a story selling tip here it comes and that is so i'm coming out of starbucks right now there's a few homeless people in the downtown i'm in tempe right 
I come out, I got my latte, I got my oatmeal, my classic oatmeal, I'm walking out the door, right? In front of me, there's a guy, obviously homeless. He's looking like, you know, he's, you know, he's looking very vagabondish, right? And we have that moment where we look at each other. Our eyes met, so to speak, right? And I'm looking at him, he's looking at me and I'm going, he's gonna ask me for money. But then there's a moment, well, where I look down and he has in his hand a wad of cash, W-A-D. I'm not talking a few bills. He has like drug dealer wad of cash. And we have that moment where I look at the money he's counting and he's like, oh shit, he just saw me counting my money. Am I going to ask this guy for money as I'm counting my wad? And he didn't say anything. I just walked right past him. Now, I tell you that story because somewhere down the road, I will find a way to use that story to drive home a point. And my point to the listeners is that you have great stories. You just have to take that. Like my story right now is not fully developed into something how, how I would use it yet. I don't know how. But I want people to start thinking that they have great stories. And the more they can leverage those personal experiences slash stories, the better they'll be at selling. That's sure. right. I'll help That's you finish the story, Victor. You should not be so bigoted and uh, condescending <laughs> to look at someone who's a bit scruffy. He could be an artist. He could be an actor. He's just finished his job. He's come in. He's been working all night, slaving away, creating a, a Hollywood film or in Phoenix, wherever you were. It could have been anyone, Victor. And you look at Part. him. And he's got his Part big water cash. Wait, 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 wait. Part two of the story. So I go back the next morning. That was Did he rob me the next yesterday. day? Is that what happened? No, 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 no. He was out there panhandling. <laughs> and, it, you know, he was just going through the whole motion. So if he's an artist, he's spending a lot of time panhandling. Hey, to round this out, Culture Quarter, this is just for you, Will. Again, when I search for content, sometimes it's not even for the audience, Will. It's for <laughs> you, man. It's for you. But look at this one. Title, 77% of employees say they waste uh, unnecessary time in meetings. A report done by Ayego, Ayego 1 and 2. Ayego surveyed 250 business, B2B business leaders in January 2021, and that's what they found. They also found 78% of leaders say they are on collaborative overload and need more quiet time. Now, here's the quick. I read this, and I put it under the culture corner mm -hmm. because, to me, this is a worthless study. This is, I mean, who doesn't know that they're wasting a lot of time in meetings? Who doesn't know that people are on, on, on just overload right now, trying to manage what's going on? I was irritated with this article, and I thought I'd share my irritation with you, Will. So the meeting side of things clear. The problem yeah. is with the collaborative overload is it's the people with no, what you call it, no ability to look internally that don't realize that they're causing this collaborative overload. I think people <laughs> like you and I will be, if we were in office right now, telling people to sod off so we get on with our work. But there's right. some people who are wired slightly differently who don't have the, I'm, I'm blanking on the terminology here, um, the, the self-awareness that they're causing these issues that a study like this left on their desk passive-aggressively might give them some, <laughs> some hints that they're the problem and they don't realize they that they're be. the problem. But I'm also thinking it's it's a time management piece here. Time management in this sense. To get 10, ten people on a call, yep. it's just hard. And then Will doesn't show up. I say, well, who's going to follow up with Will? Okay, you follow up with Will. Let me know what Will said. Will doesn't agree with that. Okay, we got to get back together, have another meeting. You know what I mean? And it's this whole collaboration thing. Yes, it's more difficult because it's remote. Like if you remember back in the days when you're in the office, as you said, you can walk over to somebody's desk. Hey, Bill, we need to do this. What do you yep. think? Can we get this done? Yeah, good. Good enough. Got it. And that was it. Right? 
the deal was done. Mm -hmm. Or a quick meeting by the water cooler or the snack, you know, the snack machine, boom, done. It is more tough. It is tougher today to have, I guess, collabor collaboration going on, even though companies are pushing collaboration. It's hard. It's really hard. What do you think about this, Victor? Salesman.org, our organization, yes. there's there's me and then nine uh, freelancers. So everyone's freelancers, mm -hmm. no uh, paid employees other than myself. Um, right. We have no meetings. We have a zero meeting rule. Everything is done in real time, as you just described. If I need to speak to Adam, our uh, incredible um, a video editor, I'll drop him a message. And when he's got a moment, he'll drop me a message back. If I've got a brief that I want to go to one of the graphic designers, if I want to get it over to George, I'll send him a document of this, what I want you to do. And he'll he'll map out the document, add comments to it, send it back to me. We don't need to do, you know, clearly if Zoom you're a massive organization, yeah. things yeah. are different. But for small businesses, you don't need the meetings that we all think are normal. We, we normalize them, but they don't need to exist. And in my experience, I, I don't want to, I like the team. I love the team, but I don't want to be on the phone with them every day doing group calls and, and, and going back and forth because people just want to get on with stuff. I like I like hiring people who produce, who want to get their head down and don't ask questions unless they're really desperate. I like people with initiative. And that's the, the that's the team that we built. And that's why we're so productive and can produce so much content with such a small mm -hmm. team. Of these guys, as I said, they're not fully working for me. They're freelancers. They've got other gigs and other jobs and that as well. And it's but because of this no well, meeting rule that we have. But that's the difference, and you're highlighting something important in a subtle way. That's the difference between a freelancer or an entrepreneur or a small business owner who has to get stuff done because they don't have time for the BS. Well, when you move into these large enterprise corporations, mm -hmm. well, we got to get everybody involved. We need collaboration. <laughs> we need buy-in. Everybody has to be nice to each other. We really need everybody to be heard. Yes. So let's go ahead and have that extra meeting. Uh, my, my daughter was complaining. Uh, she worked for a large financial company, and I'll end on this. They had two meetings meetings on trying to determine what was the right font color for one of their scripts they had to put online font color font color because that, leave it on that right so and there's probably a bunch <laughs> of psychologists there's probably is a bunch of studies on this right on, on this point is that the fact that modern corporations are so people are so scared of losing their jobs because they've been so fickle in these these large companies. You know, 20 years ago, it could be that I demand that we use this font and you're probably not going to get sacked. You're probably going to be there for another 20 years. You're going to get your role. You're going to get your pension. But now people are let go so quickly and there's just chaos everywhere in the marketplace. Does it come down to that, that people won't make a stand and say, hey, we don't need another meeting. We've This font is fine. I'll, I'll put my reputation on it. Is that what's lacking from the marketplace? Is that what's yes, lacking? Yes, that's what that's what's lacking from the market. She said there, a lot of people didn't want; they wanted to get consensus. Nobody wanted to make a decision. Yeah, just just hear that phrase out. Mm -hmm. They wanted consensus, but nobody wanted to make a decision. And you're like, you know, where we, you and I, we're like, yeah, go for it, because you and I understand that you know everything we think we control is just an illusion, right? You know, I can make that thing red, and if they don't buy, well. Change it to blue. Let's try whatever works. We're willing to play, you know, split test everything. But I think sometimes it goes ad nauseum. But anyway, I feel the pain of some of these leaders because this whole collaborating thing, a lot of these leaders, I don't think they even want to come back to the office if I remember the rest of this article. They just don't want to go back. And I get it. Yeah. And and, and just to, we'll tie it up on a, on a perhaps a sales training point from that. If you can facilitate a deal to happen, 
That can be a differentiator as you as a salesperson. I've been in this in medical devices of you have one sales, I've been competing against another salesperson. They've, they've narrowed it down. It's gone to procurement. They're doing essentially the tender process. One salesperson's faffing around, trying to do all these meetings, trying to do this and that. And I would go in, tell the surgeons, reduce the, the price structure, reduce the options and say, hey, you need this, 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 and this, and this. Do you want me to push this through for you? And we'll just get it done. And that, um, it's assertiveness as opposed to aggressiveness. You know, that there's a sliding scale there, right? We want to be assertive as opposed to a, a bully. But that can be a, a real valuable asset as a salesperson when you go in, into these environments where, I, 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 was, I was almost hesitant to say, but you go into these environments and a lot of people are just soft. They don't want to make a decision. If you can, if you can assertively nudge people from A to B to move towards the sale, that can often separate you from the competition and people will go, okay, that person's taking responsibility here. They're clearly confident in what they're, they're pitching and selling. Um, that I, I can buy into that confidence as well. And that can be, as I said, a differentiator. Yeah, Brent Adamson, you know, over at Gartner, uh, when he talked about sense-making, the one thing he made when I interviewed him that does impact me still right now is in my head. So he goes, it's not so much that people need more content. They just need the confidence that they're making the right decision. And that's your job. As you say, give them the confidence. Being assertive, as you pointed out, rightly so, not aggressive, is what people want. If you can assert something with authority and you can prove it, that's what people want. For sure. And HubSpot have data on this as well. That they uh, Their data shows that the buyers, B2B buyers, in, in the midst of the buying process, their biggest issue is overwhelm. It's not... Um, it's not too much, it's not the content, it's not what we need to, the decision-making process, it's just, we don't know what we're doing. So if you can come in and you can say, hey, we've we've been through a buying process similar to what you're doing, because this is my pitch all the time at Medical Devices, we've just sold to the, the NHS Trust, the, the, the group hospitals down the road. I can help you and our team can come in and we can guide you for procurement, we can get them on board. This is my pitch to a surgeon who doesn't want to be involved in this process. They just want the, the toys that I can deliver to them, this uh, surgical imaging equipment. We can do all that for you. Let's set up a meeting. You just leverage your name and your uh, kind of authority in the account. Be the champion, essentially, to get everyone in a room, and then we will do it all for you. And people would eat that up. Like, I don't know. What, yeah, what and that, by like? the way, that in itself as a tieback or a callback is storytelling, right? Here's what I did for them. Let me tell you the story of what I did, and here's what we can do for you. Is that what you want? Perfect. Perfect. Should we wrap things up there, Victor? Let's do it, man. I got nothing else. By the way, I do want to remind people, the Outbound Conference next month, uh, I think live is still available some, but virtual is always available. I saw the schedule. Man, it was like a 24-page schedule for what's going to go on. Uh, it's going to be fun. So go to outboundconference.com, discount code VICTOR100. Amazing stuff. And I will link that in the show notes this episode over at thisweekinsales.com where you can have all the articles that we're talking about. You can also feedback any feedback you've got for Victor or I. Feel free to slam Victor and give me some praise for putting up with him. <laughs> any articles you want us to cover. And if you're a SaaS software company, you want us to cover you on the show itself. We've had a couple of, uh, we didn't include them this week, but there'll be next week's show notes as well. Uh, please drop us a message. And with that, that was Victor Antonio. Sales royalty. My name is Will Barron, found over at salesman.org. And that was This Week in Sales. <laughs>